Several weeks ago, we started looking at the book of Mark, and we're going to continue our study of Mark's gospel. In Mark's gospel, we see a variety of things, but today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 4, and we're going to pick up at verse 35. So if you would take your Bibles and join there with me, Mark chapter 4, starting with verse 35, and we're going to be talking about the fact that even though fear is a common emotion, in many respects, it's a wasted emotion. So Mark chapter 4, starting with verse 35, this is what it says. We're gonna, I'm going to read down to verse 41. We're told here, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful for the privilege to be able to look at this portion of your word together today. Lord, we're grateful that you give us access to your word. We're grateful that in your word we learn so many things, particularly what it means to have a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we're grateful for the things that that Jesus taught during the course of his earthly ministry. We're grateful for the things that he revealed about his nature, that he is one with you and one with the Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. And so, Father, we're so grateful that through your Son, we have the privilege to know you. And through your Son, we have the privilege to walk with confidence in the midst of this world, knowing that your hand is upon us. So we pray that as we look at this portion of Scripture, that you'd help us to understand that when it comes to fear, the things that we typically fear in this world, that's a wasted emotion, and that we could have trust in you as the antidote. We love you, Lord. We commit this time to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I opened a can of worms in our household years ago that I am completely unable to undo, all right? I I can't fix it. Um, In our home, we have a habit and by the way, every family has their traditions, so I hope as I reveal mine, and I've said, I've said things about it before, but as I reveal mine, go, go light on us, all right? Don't judge us severely, but, but in our home, we have a habit of scaring one another. This is what we do. This is our tradition. This is the legacy I hope to leave to my grandchildren someday. And everyone loves it, except the person being scared. And uh, we never know if someone's going to jump out of a closet happens all the time. We never know if someone's going to jump, jump out of a cupboard or a room. It's great, except for when it isn't, right? So, for example, earlier this week, I was the last one to come home for the evening. I had just done some very spiritual things. I had just taught our Wednesday evening Bible study, so that's certainly a good thing, isn't it? Some of you were there, and, you know, I don't know that I necessarily did a particularly good job, but I at least tried. And then afterward, I led a mission board meeting, and so by the time I left the church, it was almost 10 p.m., and when I got home, uh, the house was very dark. Everything was dark. It seemed like everyone was asleep. All the cars were there, and so I knew that everybody was home, 
But my assumption was that they all went to bed, which was mostly true, except for my son, who's in his second year of college. And uh, he was waiting for me in the coat closet. (laughs) And as I opened the door to hang my jacket, he jumped out. And he got me real good. And, as I st- and it's a very uncomfortable feeling when all that adrenaline just works its way through your system, and then you have the chills afterward, and you're like, what was that? And he's like, yeah, I ought to be careful with that, shouldn't I? I was like, yeah, you really should. I was also on the phone at the time with my father as this is happening, and I said, Dad, this is your grandson. Like, this is the heritage of our family. <laughs> and he's like, that's my boy. Love that guy. But I couldn't get mad because I know it's my fault. Right? This is, like, this is how he was raised. What am I supposed to say, right? He's been trained for this moment for the past two decades of his life. But again, I just prefer to be the one scaring instead of the one being scared by him. I just prefer when it's the other way around, except he's gotten good at it. Now, here's the thing. Fear is not an uncommon emotion. All of us experience fear. We've all experienced it from the time we were little to the time uh, of life that we're at at present. And quite frequently, we wrestle with it in very obvious ways. Other times, we wrestle with fear in somewhat subtle ways. I think for some people, and you've probably met people that this is characteristic of, or maybe it's characteristic of you, but for many people, I think it could be a dominant emotion that impacts their automatic thoughts and their relationships with others and their perspective toward their circumstances and even their understanding of God. Now, when you look at what Scripture tells us about fear... It does tell us multiple things about it. In fact, it even tells us that there is such a, uh, there's such a thing as a healthy fear. There is a healthy fear. And if you want to look at what Scripture says about fear that is healthy, it basically describes it as a synonym for reverence or respect. So when Scripture is talking about this idea of us having a healthy fear of the Lord, it's saying that we revere Him, that we respect Him. But that's a very different emotion than our human fears related to our circumstances. And in Mark chapter 4, the portion of Scripture that we just read, starting with verse 35, there we have Jesus exposing the unhealthy kind of fear, because that unhealthy kind of fear was manifesting itself in the lives of His apostles, and it shows up in our lives as well. It's not something that's uncommon. We all wrestle with it to one degree or another. But He shows us here how unnecessary it actually is. And how that kind of fear can actually be counterproductive to living at peace with God's sovereign and benevolent oversight of our lives. Let's look again at the opening verses here. In verses 35 and 36 of Mark 4, it tells us, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. So that's what it tells us. So at this season, and we've seen this now as we've been working through the early chapters of the Gospel of Mark, but at this season of Jesus' earthly ministry, you have crowds that were just following Him. They're following Him. They want to hear what He has to say. They want to hear what He's going to do or see what He's going to do. They wanted to know what He might do that would impact people they knew and loved, and there were crowds that were following Him uh, pretty much continually. And so far, He had established authority in a variety of ways. He had established his authority in what he taught. He also established his divine authority over sickness. There's even examples of him establishing his divine authority over demonic spirits. All of these things are referenced 
in the early chapters of the Gospel of Mark. But now, he was going to use this particular experience to demonstrate his authority over the elements of nature, like the wind and the water. So there was going to be a huge lesson in this about his actual divine nature. Now, the scripture tells us here that during the evening, Jesus expressed his desire to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And again, he was such a, a popular figure at this point that it was very hard for him to find a way to step away from the crowds. And so taking a trip across the water, like he would be doing in this context, that would certainly give him at least a temporary pause. It would certainly give him an opportunity to rest since the large, crowd, large crowds wouldn't be able to make that journey across the water with him. Although when you notice in Mark's account here, something else that he says, he does reveal that there were actually several boats of people that came along. So there are some people that did come along in, in multiple boats, but generally speaking, the very large crowds that sometimes numbered in hundreds, sometimes numbered in thousands, they weren't going to be able to cross the water with him. So he crosses the water, and there's a few boats that go with them, but in general, the crowds, he's getting a little bit of a break from the crowds that have been swarming him up to this point. Now, I know some of you, and I've known some of you for a long time at this point, and, um, and some of you I'm just meeting, but in our, in our church family, some of you would very much consider yourselves introverts, and some of you would consider yourself extroverts, and it becomes very, very obvious sometimes which side of that coin many of us land on. But here's the thing, even if you're an extrovert, so if you're an extrovert, odds are you probably enjoy being around other people. You look for opportunities to be in the midst of crowds. You look for opportunities to hang out with other people, and you tend to enjoy that. You tend to be energized by that. But even if you're an extrovert, it can be exhausting to be around large groups of people continually even if you have an extroverted personality. And by the way, have you ever found yourself in a circumstance where you've just stepped away from a crowded event for, for just a few moments just so you could catch your breath and experience a momentary pause where you don't have to hold conversation? It's not that you don't like people. It's not that you don't like being around crowds. You just need a moment. Just kind of step away. Have you ever done that? I think probably everybody's done that in, in, to one degree or another. Well, when you look at what Scripture reveals to us about Jesus, it reveals to us that Jesus is fully God. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. Jesus is fully God, but during this particular era of history, Jesus came to this earth and he took on flesh, becoming fully human, 100% God and 100% human at the same time. And that 100% human aspect of who he is, that was subject to fatigue. He was subject to fatigue during his earthly ministry. He, at times, needed rest. He actually made that very clear in multiple ways. He needed a temporary reprieve from the throngs of people that were surrounding him, and so this was an opportunity for him to do this. But things don't pan out the way I think the disciples initially thought they were going to pan out. And when you look at verses 37 and 38, it tells us this. It says, so they're now on the boat, they're going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and it says, and a great windstorm arose. And the waves were, were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are perishing? That's what they state to him in that particular moment. Now, have you ever met someone who kind of seems like they can sleep through anything? Some, oh my goodness, some of you just looked at your spouse. I saw that several places around this room. Some of you just looked at your spouse. 
Okay, so some of your spouses apparently fall into that category, all right? Maybe some of your children do as well, or maybe you're the one, right? So we've all met people who seem like they can sleep through anything. Well, in this portion of Scripture, it reveals to us Jesus was genuinely fatigued as this trip was, was taking place, as they're going across the Sea of Galilee. And so he laid down to rest on a cushion, and it tells us that he was in the back of the boat. It references the fact that he was in the stern, that's the back of the boat. So he goes into the back of the boat, and he lays down, and it tells us that while he was sleeping, a windstorm arose that started filling the boat with water as waves kept breaking over the boat's sides. So these waves are getting very aggressive. They're breaking over the boat's sides. They're starting to fill the boat with water. And his disciples are looking at him and thinking, how is it possible to sleep through weather like this? How is it even possible? And by the way, something I, I, I read earlier this week that I wanted to show you really quickly. This is from, I don't know if you have this resource, but if you've never picked a copy up, I'd encourage you to check it out. You could also use it online. You ever utilize the Amplified Bible? If you're ever doing a word study or just want extra elaboration on some of the things that you're reading in Scripture, excellent resource. I have no hesitation encouraging you to check that out. But this is what the Amplified Bible in one of their notes happened to say about this particular portion of Scripture. They said, the Sea of Galilee is famous for its sudden and severe storms produced by winds that funnel through the passes and the canyons of the surrounding hills and create severe turbulence on the water. So that area apparently is known for this. The way it's set up geographically, this happens with some degree of regularity. And it's known for these, these winds that would just funnel through and create severe turbulence on the water. And that could be a very, very scary thing. And now you look at this context here and who Jesus is with, and if you remember from the previous chapters, some of Christ's disciples, what did they do vocationally before they followed him? Well, Scripture reveals to us that they were experienced fishermen, they knew the Sea of Galilee. They fished the Sea of Galilee. So they knew how perilous these kinds of storms could be. They'd seen things like this before. This was a scary thing for them because they thought, oh no, we're caught in one of these. They didn't have tools like you and I have to be able to predict certain aspects of weather, and even the tools we have right now aren't exactly perfect. But imagine, they're, they're caught in this storm, they're going across the sea, and they see this and they think, okay, we've seen stuff like this before. People die in these things. People die in these kinds of storms. And so they're, they're freaking out in this moment. They're fearful that they're about to lose their lives. And they just cannot believe that Jesus is able to sleep through this. They're thinking, you know, you're our teacher. You're our, our rabbi. You're the one that's guiding us. And we know that storms like this kill people. How is this not even impacting you? I mean, I get, we get it that you're tired, but you'd think that the boat filling up with water and the fact that it's moving a whole bunch might disturb your sleep. And they can't understand why he's not really disturbed by it. He's not disturbed by it at all. It's not bothering him at all. He's able to sleep right through it. And they're looking at this and they're just saying, this doesn't compute. This doesn't make sense. He doesn't seem troubled by this at all. And it seems from their questioning of Jesus that they were actually bothered by his seeming indifference to this situation. And the question that they ask him or the comment that they make to him is basically, you know, don't you even care about the fact that things seem so dangerous in this moment that we might actually die? Like, don't you care? How can you not care that we might actually die right now? How is that not troubling you? By the way, it wouldn't surprise me to know that maybe there's been a time or two in your own life where you've thought the same thing. 
where you've looked at what's going on around you and you've kind of thought through your circumstances and you've watched as you've been in the midst of some things that are rather challenging and rather difficult. Maybe you've even asked God that same question. Don't you care that this is happening to me? I mean, don't you care that this is going to severely impact my life, maybe even cause me to lose my life? I'm guessing that by now you've probably experienced some perilous moments of your own. It's, it doesn't really take too long into life before we start experiencing things like that. And, uh, you know, again, maybe you felt at different seasons of your life that you were even pretty close to death, just like the disciples felt right there on that water. I'm sure that if we traded stories, we'd probably have a variety of stories to be able to tell one another of moments where we almost lost it, moments where we came really, really close to the end. And I'm curious if in the midst of your peril, what was going through your mind? Did you wonder if God noticed you in the midst of that moment, or did you feel like you were abandoned and on your own? Did you wonder if he actually saw what was going on? Did you wonder if, oh, there's 8 billion people on this planet. How would he even notice what I'm going through? Is that some of the stuff you were wrestling with? It wouldn't surprise me if some of us, if we're being transparent, if some of those types of thoughts maybe went through our minds at different seasons or different trials. And in, in the midst of that, that's, that's very easy, I think, to, to land on that kind of thinking. I think sometimes people really genuinely wonder whether or not God cares about their own well-being or would he come to our rescue, or does he have a purpose for our pain, or any of those sorts of things. And so this was the type of thing that they asked Jesus. They're like, don't you care that we might be perishing? Don't you care that we literally might be dying right now? Like, this might be our last moment, and you're sleeping. You're resting. They're asking this, I think, to some degree in curiosity, but I also think they're asking this with a little irritation in their voice, and maybe some of them are just directly angry. How can you sleep? What are you doing? They wonder. So in verse 39, it tells us his response. And it says, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And it tells us, And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? It's an interesting experience that he allowed his disciples to go through in this moment. When Jesus wakes from his rest, he looks at the wind, he looks at the water, and he orders them to settle. He speaks that. He directly says that. He literally spoke to them, and they obeyed his voice. It's kind of, I, I love portions of Scripture like this that remind us that all Christ has to do is say the word. Scripture actually tells us this is how creation was created. He spoke it into existence. And creation is sustained, we're told, by the powerful word of Christ. So he's the creator and the sustainer of the universe, and he holds it all together, and he spoke it into existence with his powerful word. And the Scripture here tells us that when the wind ceased, after he says, peace, be still. When the wind ceased, we're told here there was great calm. Such a drastic difference from what the disciples experienced just a few moments earlier, isn't it? Just great calm. But then Jesus spoke again. And this is the part that I think is really fascinating and really interesting to look at. In addition to the fact that he can command the wind and the waves, he speaks again here. And instead of uttering a command, what he does when he speaks after commanding the wind and waves, this time he offers a couple questions. And he looks at his disciples and he asks, first of all, why are you so afraid? 
Why are you so afraid? So he confronts them with that. And I don't think he was doing so with arrogance. If, if I had to suspect, there was, there was an understanding in his voice, I would imagine, because he's showing them things that, naturally speaking, they wouldn't understand. He knows that this is a time to teach them. He's discipling them. He's training them. He's using these as teachable moments. I think sometimes people look at these things and assume that Jesus must have got really angry with this group. And I don't think it was like that at all. I think he looked at them, and he wanted to challenge them, and he wanted to poke and provoke, uh, like, he just like uh, provoke them a little bit. I don't think he was angry with them, but he looks at them, and he's like, why are you so afraid? And then he follows it up again, and he says, have you still no faith? Have you still no faith? Now, that's an interesting statement for him to make, or an interesting question for him to ask. Have you still no faith? Because at this point, They've been with him for a little bit. Now, I can only imagine having to wrestle with these questions in that moment, because even though these events here that are taking place in Mark chapter 4 are taking place still during the early portion of Christ's earthly ministry, think about what his disciples had already seen. They've already witnessed him do some very, very miraculous things, things that they had never, ever seen before. So you would think in some respects that by now that they would have learned to trust him for the things that they had not yet seen based on the things that they had already seen. You would think that maybe those connections would start to be made, but Jesus looks at them and says, have you still no faith? Why are, you, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? By the way, isn't it exactly the same for us? One of the things that's really, really easy to do and sometimes almost entertaining to do when you're going through the Gospels is to pick on the disciples when they goof stuff up because they do it all the way through. All the way through. They're doing it constantly. They're, they're being corrected. They're being shown different things that they didn't understand. And it's very easy for me sometimes when I go through that to just chuckle. I'm like, how could you guys not know that? I'm like, come on, you just saw what he did in the previous chapter. You see him speaking with authority, healing people, casting demons out. You see all these sorts of things. How are you missing that? And then you chuckle, and then you think, well, what would my response have been if I was on that boat? And there Jesus is sleeping. Like sleeping? Really? You're going to sleep. You're going to sleep through this. It's exactly the same for us, isn't it? We would ask the same questions or need the same things to be asked of us. Jesus has shown us so many things. I don't care how old you are. You know, looking around this room, whether you're the youngest person in this room or the oldest person in this room, Jesus has already shown you so many things that you'd think that by now we wouldn't struggle with fear at all. You'd think it wouldn't even be an issue for us. We've already seen what he can do. So why do we still question if he's going to act in ways that are consistent with his character? Do we have this thought that somehow his character is going to change? Do we have this thought that somehow his nature is going to change? He's going to stop being the God he's always been? Why are we so afraid? Why do we struggle to trust him? There's something the Lord's inviting you to trust him for right now that maybe feels like a struggle. Why are we so afraid to trust him for these things? It's a, a, a real dilemma in the midst of our human nature, isn't it? This is a common struggle. It was common for the disciples. It's common for us. But it's interesting to look at this portion of Scripture and just contrast it with other things that we see in Scripture, including some of the things that we read in the book of Jonah, because there's some really interesting and direct contrast. You ever read the book of Jonah when you were a child? Most people haven't actually read the book of Jonah. Most people have read children's books about the book of Jonah, right? 
I'd encourage you, it's a very short book. It'll only take you about 10 minutes to read it. If you ever get the opportunity, which you will have the opportunity, so just do this, okay? Um, read the book of Jonah. It's a book that ends with Jonah basically complaining and the Lord having to say, could you just knock it off? But you look at different things, and there are things in the book of Jonah that are actually meant to parallel or really contrast the ministry of Christ. There's both. There's some parallel and there's some contrast. But it's interesting because Jonah was a prophet. He lived about 800 years before these events were taking place here in Mark chapter 4. And God instructed Jonah with some very specific instructions. He said, look, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to the city of Nineveh. It's a great city. It's a great capital of the Assyrian Empire, the world superpower at the time. And Jonah was encouraged and commanded to speak against their sin and to give that people group the best opportunity possible for them to repent. He was encouraged to just go and talk to them. Now, Jonah hated the people of Assyria. He hated the people of Nineveh. He had no desire whatsoever to go and speak to them. And so Scripture tells us that instead of being obedient to God, what did Jonah do? Well, we're told that instead of taking admirable steps of faith and going and speaking to this group of people, he gets in a boat and he attempts to flee from the Lord's presence. And then this is what the Scripture says when you look at Jonah chapter 1 in the opening verses. This is the first six verses. Look at this. I'm doing some of your homework for you, all right? You don't even have to read uh, the first six verses. Just start at verse 7 in your own time. But in the first six verses, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a, a thought to us that we may not perish. By the way, how many people do you suppose read through the book of Jonah and they're like, oh, interesting story, and they never make the connections that the whole thing was trying to point you to Jesus the whole time? I would imagine most people. But here you have Jonah attempting to flee from the voice of God. But let's contrast that a little bit. Jesus is the Word of God, Scripture tells us, who commands nature and it obeys. Jonah slept in the boat, exhausted from running away from God. Jesus slept the peaceful sleep of living right in the center of God's will. Jonah was thrown into the Mediterranean Sea. I'm giving some of it away, all right? But he was thrown into the Mediterranean Sea where he was swallowed by a great fish. But he lived and he emerged after three days to preach repentance to the people of Nineveh. Jesus was crucified and died. He was buried in a tomb, but then rose on the third day. By the way, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he said, no sign is going to be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. They're like, what's the sign of Jonah? Well, Jonah rose from the belly of a fish. Jesus rose from the belly of the earth on the third day. He was buried in a tomb, but he rose from death on the third day to defeat the power of death. 
and to empower those who trust in him to preach his gospel to the ends of the earth. So you see some comparison and some contrasts to what was taking place in the book of Jonah. But Mark chapter 4, going back to that portion of Scripture, when you look at verse 41, shows us how the disciples respond to all this taking place. It says, And they were filled with great, a great fear and said to one another, again, I'll read it, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? So after Jesus demonstrates his power over the wind and over the waves, you have his disciples, they're filled with, as you look at this, it's kind of, it's that different kind of fear, isn't it? It's a reverence. They know that their life isn't in a perilous spot, but they're looking at Jesus and they were filled with great fear, which is a reverence, a respect for him. They have their fear of dying on the water being replaced with respect for the power that Jesus clearly displayed in their, in their presence. And here's the thing, and if the wind and waves obeyed him, why shouldn't they? This is kind of the, the thing that's being forced upon them to, to really have to think about. They have to make a decision about these things. And likewise, let's make it personal to us. Let's not just talk about his, his early disciples. If the winds and waves obey him, why shouldn't we? Should we not do the same? If the wind and waves obey him, if creation obeys him, shouldn't we? Of course we should. Here's the thing. In this life, we will be more likely to become consumed with unhealthy fear when our consciences are troubling us. If we don't possess the peace and the assurance that comes from knowing we're right in the center of God's will. We'll be afraid of all kinds of things. We'll worry about what-if scenarios. We'll worry about the decisions our governmental leaders make or don't make. We'll worry about our health. We'll worry about our children. We'll worry about whether or not our bank accounts are going to have enough to carry us to the end of a given month. We'll worry, we'll worry, we'll worry. It'll be a, a constant thing. We'll just be consumed by fear, day in and day out, if we're maybe trying to live with a conscience that's troubled, or we're trying to run and not really try and live our lives in the center of God's will, it's just going to produce fear, and it's the unhealthy kind of fear. And it's not what God desires for any of us. But if these are things that you're presently worried about, here's something else you should know. You're in good company. That's what most of this world worries about continually. Most of this world is consumed with those very things. But here's the thing. I can promise you that Jesus wants more for your life than for you to live in constant fear or constant worry of temporary scenarios. He who commands the wind and the waves is likewise watching over you and me. He promises that he's doing that. So every trial that you experience, it means that, that he means it for you to experience long-term benefit from it. And I can even promise you that the day is going to come when you'll be able to look back at some of your lowest and most painful moments, and you're going to be able to give praise to God for those moments because you're going to see what He did to bring you out of what seemed hopeless. And it's not just this portion of Scripture that speaks of these things. All throughout Scripture, you have reminders that God gives us that our fear is an unhealthy and wasted emotion. 
that he doesn't want us to go through life thinking this way, living this way. He wants us to go through life genuinely trusting him for the things we've already seen and for the things that we haven't seen. As we finish up this morning, I want to share several quick scriptures with you, and I hope you take each of them to heart because I believe the Lord gave these things to us so that we would learn from them and grow from them and that our hearts would genuinely find rest in him. In Isaiah 41.10, it says this, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is how God treats his people. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. This is what God desires to do for his children. It would not surprise me if the next portion of Scripture that I show us is something that some of you already have underlined in your Bible or maybe even present somewhere in your house as a, as a piece of art on your wall or maybe a reminder on your desk. I still remember the first time I, I really gave good thought to this next portion of Scripture. I was a freshman in college, and I remember sitting in a class looking at it and just staring at it and thinking, I've read this before, but why is it hit, hitting me so hard right now? But in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, it says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm not wrong when I say that some of you have that underlined, right? I'm not wrong in saying that I bet some of you have that as a decoration in your home somewhere. That's an encouraging portion of Scripture. One other I want to share with us. In Psalm 56, verse 3, you have David saying this, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. What do our fears usually come down to? It's usually because we're trusting our own strength, wisdom, and power to try and handle circumstances that are beyond our control. And what did David learn over the course of his life? That most of what he was dealing with was very much outside of his control. And so what does he just pray to the Lord and, and say poetically? When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. That's the same type of thing that you and I have the opportunity to pray, and I hope that we'll do so. Here's the thing. Your fear is a wasted emotion. If it's not being directed toward the Lord with reverence and respect, if it's just you being all worried about your day-to-day -day circumstances, it is a wasted emotion. When you look at what Jesus was teaching the disciples and what his word reveals to us, he reminds us that the solution for and the antidote to fear, the fear that we're all so prone to experience, the antidote to it all is to trust in him. That's his invitation to you and to me, to trust in him. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the things that you reveal to us in it. We're just so grateful, Lord, that we have the privilege to look at all sorts of things that you reveal to us in Scripture. We get to think about these things and realize that the things that we wrestle with are the type of things that, humanly speaking, are very common. It's not uncommon for us as, as people to wrestle with all kinds of worries and fears. We, we all find ourselves slipping into that from time to time. I know for me that there are absolutely seasons where I, I see that creeping into my mind and creeping into my life. And I think, what am I doing? This doesn't belong here. And so, Lord, I'm grateful that we get to come to a portion of Scripture like this where we see 
What your son Jesus Christ was teaching his disciples, and we can wrestle with the same kind of questions that he was asking them. Why are we so afraid? Haven't we already seen the things that he's done? Father, I'm just so grateful for the fact that we could look at a portion of Scripture like this and say, yep, that, that's exactly what I needed you to tell me today. That we could look at your word and realize that there are things here intentionally given to us for us to be able to read and understand your nature and be reminded of the fact that we can trust you. And so, Lord, gathered together right now, I realize that each of us in this room, we've been living different lives. We're at different seasons of life. Some of us are young. Some, are, some of us are old. Some of us are somewhere in the middle. And yet the lesson is exactly the same, regardless of whatever season of life we're at. You invite us to trust in you, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what we wrestle with, regardless of how old we are, you invite us to trust in you. And we have the opportunity to do that through your son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth living the perfect life that we couldn't live. So he lived it for us. And we deserve death because of our sin. So he died for us and took our sin upon himself. And we deserve death because of our sin that would be a permanent reality that would defeat us forever. And so Jesus, your son, secured victory over death when he rose from the grave and he offers us resurrection as well through faith in him. So Father, I pray that if there be anyone among us who as of yet has not experienced the gift of salvation, the forgiveness of their sin, the promise of eternal life, the hope of resurrection through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, who speaks to the wind and the waves and it obeys him, who upholds creation by his powerful word. I pray that today would be the day that your son is recognized as Lord in the lives of each and every one of us. And that as we recognize that your son is our Lord, that we would trust him completely, walk with him faithfully, and have the experience of perfect peace that transcends all understanding, guarding our hearts and guarding our minds in him. Thank you, Father, for these promises from your word and your encouragement to us today. We thank you for your presence with us right now through your spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.